Well, the government is spared from a shutdown, but the showdown, well, that's just beginning. The show starts now. Well, it was another spicy weekend for politics and football, but we'll get to that one later. Here are a few takeaways. Our border is being invaded by hundreds of thousands, the highest number ever recorded, and your leaders, your uniparty representation in Congress and, of course, in the White House, are more concerned with people and borders in Ukraine. Here is a written statement from your president, President Clueless, about averting the government shutdown, an entire paragraph of which is dedicated to... Ukraine, shocker, quote, we cannot under any circumstances allow American support for Ukraine to be interrupted. Just let that line, that entire paragraph sink in. Name another country on the face of the earth whose president would release a statement prioritizing the safety and security of another nation. Name one, I dare you. The U.S. of asylum is the only nation on God's green earth that does this babysits, funds, and welcomes the world while neglecting its own citizens. And that's not a compliment, that's an embarrassment. And here's what else is an embarrassment. The Democrat Party, just as a whole, led up by this, the dimmest bulb on the Christmas tree. I hope this experience for the speaker has been one of a personal revelation. I'm not being facetious. I, uh, um, anyway. Wow, you know, I am just waiting for Ashton Kutcher to jump out from behind that decrepit old man and tell us we've been punked because this administration has been the longest running prank in American history. But Democrats ought to be proud. Their president can't complete a sentence or use the regular size stairs. Their senator wants to wear hoodies and basketball shorts to work. Oh, and their congressman can't tell the difference between an exit and a fire alarm. Yeah, that's Democrat Representative Jamal Bowman pulling the fire alarm ahead of the crucial congressional vote to avert a looming government shutdown. His team claiming that he thought that bright red lever that says fire alarm was actually a door exit mechanism. So that's either a lie or New York's 16th district is being represented by a literal dumbass. You be the judge. You know, falsely triggering a fire alarm is illegal and a disruption of official proceedings. But if you're waiting for him to be punished in any way, shape or form, don't hold your breath because you will suffocate and die. There's plenty more drama to sift through on this first Monday of October. So joining me now is PragerU personality Xavier DeRusso. So, Xavier, uh, a lot going on in the news today. Uh, I'm not sure what captivated the attention of more Americans, the Democrats wanting to shut down the government over Ukraine or Taylor Swift going to another flipping football game. So I'll let you pick which topic you want to start with. You know, it's interesting that people are so obsessed with Taylor Swift and her shenanigans. We've been seeing this for almost 20 years now where she's a serial dater, which I mean, it's not too out of the norm. She's a millennial. She's still trying to find her husband. But it's now seeing where NFL tickets are skyrocketing because Taylor Swift is going to the game. It's honestly insane how much power this one individual has over such a large demographic of people. 
it's wild to me how much people care, but it's not wild to me how much her fans care. I get that. It's a, it's a cult-like mentality surrounding Taylor Swift. Others have similar followings, Nicki Minaj, Beyonce. You know, we're kind of used to this fan cult. What's interesting to me is actually how much the NFL is playing into this, how much the NFL is promoting this. I mean, they recut a Sunday night football ad having her song in there, having photos of her. I mean, it's been nonstop coverage of just her being at that game. And, you know, celebrities go to sporting events all the time. I get it that she's rumored to be dating Travis Kelsey, but I actually, as someone who's not a football fan, I actually feel badly for football fans that this is what they're having to endure when they're trying to watch football, just nonstop cutaways to... Taylor Swift. What do you think? Is she ruining football for fans? You know, it definitely is a bit cringeworthy. You know, a lot of people have their girlfriends now actually invested in the game a little bit. So I guess there's a bit of a perk there. But the NFL is just capitalizing on the tickets, probably, and all the extra press. I mean, there's no such thing as bad press. And when you're trying to sell out these arenas, you might as well have a celebrity of celebrities like Taylor Swift there to bring in everybody's attention. I just hope it's short-lived. Um, I think every <laughs> every single headline on my timeline is something about Taylor Swift or somebody eating a chicken nugget or you know. It, to me, it's just it's just it's gone too far. Um, so that was really the news of the weekend. Uh, I'm surprised it wasn't you know the potential government shutdown and you know the pulling of the fire alarm by Representative Bowman, but it actually was Taylor Swift. Moving on from that, though, I do want to get to more important matters, and that is this government shutdown and the criticisms of both Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates. So on that kind of battle of the titans here, which one do you align with more? Which one do you think is more right, if either, in this new kind of feud of the right? You know, it's a bit difficult to say. I feel like I'm a bit split in the middle. I understand why Matt Gates is trying to hold Kevin McCarthy accountable. But at the same time, I'm not a fan of people in the Republican Party just constantly at each other's throats. You know, I feel like Matt Gates is really just trying to stay in the headlines a bit by being so adamant and going after Kevin McCarthy, because realistically, they're not going to be able to vote him out of his seat. And even if they did, then who would they be replacing him with? The Democrats are surely not going to put someone who is, I guess you could say, a little further right than McCarthy because that's not going to benefit them. So I just think that this is all just a game at this point. And it's getting a bit frustrating that we're constantly at odds with each other rather than actually finding solutions to these issues. You know, speaking kind of of the the pandemonium surrounding Taylor Swift, it feels to me like a lot of our representatives, I think AOC was kind of the first one, but now it's a lot more Republicans getting in on this influencer game. It feels to me like there's a lot of people that are elected officials that would rather, as you say, be in the headlines or have a viral moment or just get attention rather than actually governing for their people. You know, and I think a lot of the things that Matt Gates stands for are noble. Same thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. You know, a lot of the things they stand for, I also agree with. But it feels like with those three specifically, it feels a lot more like they're trying to do whatever they can to be popular, famous, or infamous rather than doing their actual jobs. You know, do you think we're running the risk of that influence or culture infiltrating not only Congress, but the conservative movement? A hundred percent. And here's the problem. It's not necessarily the influencers who are the problem. The problem is that 
The American voters do not want substance anymore, especially as Gen Z is quickly becoming the largest voting bloc that we have. People aren't studying policy. They don't understand even the most basic rhetoric of what's said in politics. But what they do understand is a viral moment. What they do understand is when a politician or a candidate says something that's like witty or funny or humorous or on, or on trend. So what a lot of people are doing now is they're trying to win over young voters, particularly by having these clickbait style moments that get that gets everyone talking about them. You know, personally, I'm getting sick and tired of this celebrity politician era that I feel that we've really been seeing ever since Obama, but it is the reality of the matter. But what I want the the Republican Party to start utilizing more is the benefit to this influencer culture. There are so many influencers out there who actually do bring substance and have something valuable to say and are going to help them market to young people without being corny or embarrassing or doing these awkward trends just for clicks. There are ways that you can combine substance with virality, but we're not seeing that be executed well enough. No, and I just don't see young people voting for a Marjorie Taylor Greene ever or a Matt Gates ever, except they're, if they're on the conservative side, of course, and they you know attend TPUSA events, that's a different story. But your average <laughs> run-of-the-mill millennial Gen Z, I just don't see them seeing their viral moments and being like, yeah, that's who I'm going to vote for. Um, but I want to talk about RFK quickly because you know there's a lot of rumors, a lot of validity probably to these rumors, that he is thinking about running as an independent, a libertarian, a third-party candidate you know, and that seems like trouble for Joe Biden. But I think that could also be trouble for the Republican Party, too. If Donald Trump is our nominee, there are going to be people that won't vote for Joe, um, but they don't want to vote for Trump. And I think they might turn their eye to RFK. So a lot of these Republicans celebrating about an RFK Jr. run as a third party. I'm a little concerned how that's going to affect the right. What is your thought? I agree with you 100%. I think a lot of people initially did think that this was bad news for Joe Biden because a lot of the people who are just loyal to not voting Republican were going to start voting for RFK. However, I think this hurts Trump a lot more than a lot of people initially let on because those independent voters are who we desperately need to win over on the right. And RFK, he's winning a lot of independent voters. I try to talk to people on a grassroots level as much as possible, and it's shocking how many local Republicans are wanting to vote for RFK. And now that he's independent, they lose that guilt and shame of voting Democrat. So a lot of these Kennedy Democrats, as well as just general independents, are certainly going to be looking at RFK. This takes away a lot of votes from both sides. So I think every candidate needs to take RFK very seriously. No, I agree with you. I think, you know, as much as the left tries to ignore him, I think that the right is going to, in a lot of ways, embrace him if they don't like Donald Trump and Donald Trump ends up being our nominee. So it's almost kind of like the Bernie Sanders effect as well. He doesn't fit the mold, and a lot of people like that about him, even though some of his policies, some of his, I guess, preferences are a little bizarre. Some I agree with. I agree with all of his COVID thoughts for the most part. But uh, I also want to talk about what's going on in America because, you, as we both know, this is a circus. We had Philly last week, mass looting. We had, you know, Meatball, another influencer, being slapped with six felonies. Thank goodness. Whether she will ever serve hard time for any of them is questionable. But then we have another story out of Michigan, and we have, you know, video of it. And I want your reaction. I don't know if you saw this yet. But there is a teacher in the school in Flint, Michigan, an academy school, a high school, and she was trying to break up a fight between two young people. She got herself in the middle where one young person threw a metal chair at her head, knocked her out cold. The teens continued to fight over her injured body. 
this seems to be the norm now. I think young people have gone feral, and I don't know how we correct it. I don't know if there's an antidote for that. Is this just the situation we're stuck with moving forward? Well, first of all, I pray that that teacher has a speedy recovery because no amount of money in the world is being printed to justify someone having to endure being treated like that at their profession, especially when it's someone like a teacher who is passionate about trying to put these kids on the right path. To see her have to go through that is very, very saddening. But the first question that I had when I looked at this video is what is happening in that girl's household that makes her have such a lack of regard for another human being, let alone for her own future? Because a decision like that to throw a chair at someone could not only end someone's life, but it can ruin all the opportunities that she has. And it's very sad to think that this this girl might have went home and been relatively unpunished. What if she doesn't have a proper two-parent household or even a proper parent in general to discipline her? And is this behavior going to continue for her? And is she just going to be a part of the statistic that I call a school-to-prison pipeline? It's very sad to see our youth declining at such a rapid manner. But the one thing that gave me a little bit of hope when I saw this video circulating on Instagram, I always go to the comment sections because a lot of times when we see this level of degeneracy, many people are cheering it on and encouraging it. But for once, we finally saw comment sections that were overwhelmingly against this. So it did give me this tiny bit of hope that people are disgusted by this behavior, that maybe we can start to correct our culture. But as of right now, this is certainly becoming the norm in a lot of these major cities. So that's an actual crime, somebody, you know, assaulting somebody else, causing injuries, maybe even lifelong injuries. I mean, there's been numerous incidents, whether it's attacking the teacher or attacking a fellow student in the hallway. We've seen a lot of trans students attacking other students. That video went viral last week. But then there's another story of a non-binary student in Oregon, shocker, awarded $300,000 for being bullied for being trans. Now, listen. I don't believe in bullying anybody. Some of the things that happened to this student were abhorrent, pulling the pants down. You know, I don't believe in any of that. None of that has a place. But I think there are a lot of kids and a lot of schools that are bullied for one reason or another, and I don't see them getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in a payout. So what do you think this is? What does this represent? And do you think we're going to see more of this, especially on the, the non-binary, you're discriminating against me side of things? I think this is just the beginning. Oh, it's certainly just the beginning. I've said this for years now, that victim mindset and being a victim in general is extremely profitable because you hear this time and time again that 10 years ago, we never would have even imagined that someone could win a dollar for being harassed because they went to school perpetuating this narrative that they do not have a gender. But now it's becoming such a norm and such a reality, even at such a young age. What would a parent expect their child to go through when you send your child to school and you have this complete brainwashing over them that they're expecting other people to cater to. What I respect about very young people is they tend to call it like they see it and they are very blunt and they are very direct about their opinions. And while I, of course, do not condone bullying in any way, but it does not shock me that a student who is trying to force everyone else to be a part of their delusional mental illness, that they are being harassed at these school systems. And unfortunately, as we continue to see more and more non-binary, quote unquote, students, we are certainly going to see a lot more lawsuits and a lot more parents who are adamant about making the teachers be social justice warriors just like them. And a lot of these teachers are happy warriors for that social justice cause.
That's another unfortunate part of this. I think the discussion, not only do we need more people that are doing vocational jobs and going into vocational training, we need more conservative-minded folks to get into education. If we ever want to have a chance in this country, that's a part of this that I think really deserves a discussion. A lot of conservative teachers being run out, of course, because they feel as though they are in the minority and they can't actually teach the way that they were taught to teach uh, about academics and not about rainbows. Uh, last thing I, I want to ask you about, though, is the big elephant in the room. Gavin Newsom, right, appoints LaFonza Butler, and I'm going to get to this in my final thoughts and give my thoughts, but I want to get your top-line thoughts here because this broke late last night that he picked someone to replace Dianne Feinstein. Of course, we know that he already committed to having a black woman fill this spot, but now we're getting more information that she was actually registered to vote in Maryland not too long ago, if not still. So how do you think this is going to play out for Gavin Newsom? He went the identity politics route. He picked the first LGBTQ black woman to serve in California Senate. But does this pan out for him or do you think there's going to be some backlash to this decision? I certainly think there's going to be backlash publicly and in the headlines, but will he see any accountability? Absolutely not, because he played his cards correctly. He went and got someone that was an affirmative action hire, as I look at it. But by playing the identity politics route, he's going to be able to completely deflect from the fact that there are some sketchy details to this story. And he can just lean on the fact that he did the greater good for society by hiring someone of her demographic. I don't trust anyone who's connected to Gavin Newsom. So it's no surprise that this person has a sketchy history. Yeah, also uh, worked for uh, Kamala Harris, too. So that's another one. And I think we've learned through Kamala Harris and really pretty much every Biden appointee in selection that going with identity politics over merit doesn't work out so well. So here we are. Um, unfortunately, we still have some time to endure this, but I guess we'll get through it by watching Taylor Swift at uh, Kansas City Chiefs games. I guess that's just our escape now, and we can all put our blinders on and, and focus on that. Xavier, thank you for being with me. God bless you, and I'll have you back real soon. God bless you. Thank you for having me. Of course. All right. Initial data for September shows a whopping 260,000 illegal immigrant encounters at the border. That happens to be the highest single month ever recorded, at least until this month hits the books, I'm sure. And guess what? There's nothing anybody is really going to do about it. Squawk and moan and pontificate, but nothing is really being done. This is, this is illegal immigrants crawling under Governor Abbott's razor wire with blankets and cardboard over their backs. But you'll be comforted to know that Elon Musk, an immigrant from South Africa, cares more about exposing this invasion than your elected officials. How many of the four or five million uh, legal immigrants are sent back to their countries every year? I'll give you an example. Here in, here in Del Rio, Del Rio sector is one of nine sectors, okay? Uh, we're getting over 20, about 2,500 people coming over illegally a day. And we are we are repatriating or sending zero back. Zero. Z zero. Zero. So zero, zero is a quite a small number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, just, just literally zero. So zero. basically there's no repatriation. What is happening is zero. This is insane. What is happening is at best they will send people to other parts of the border. That's okay. not back to where they the country of origin. That's the Laredo or El Paso. Okay. In worst case scenario, and I want to bring in the mayor here, the worst case scenario is where they're at. You bubble to a point where there's nowhere else to send them. So what you end up doing is you release them into the street. This isn't sustainable, and our next president better be in the business of mass deportations, deportations by 
the millions. Here now with his expert analysis is former acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Chad, it's great to have you. Now, I want to ask you right off the bat, you know there's an invasion. I know there's an invasion. Anybody with eyes knows there's an invasion at our southern border. But I just want to debunk the left's claims right out the gate because they say, you know, every administration has struggled with illegal immigration right. and having an immigration crisis. You've been around. You've seen it all. You know what's been going on. Is that really the case? Is this just business as usual, the same song and dance we've been seeing for generations? No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on. Obviously, it's not business as usual. What we're experiencing along that southern border is historic. It's historic by any metric or measure that you're using. Um, and so while I think it is true to say that we've always had issues with illegal immigration and folks coming across that border, we are seeing numbers and we are seeing the capacity come across that border that we have never seen before. And so all of the different excuses by the Biden administration, really, if you recall, it, first it was Trump's fault, and then it was seasonal, and then it was cyclical, and then there's like this Western hemisphere migration pattern that's going on. And so, you know, it's everything but but the policies that they put in place. And so I think what most of the listeners and others need to understand is that the numbers that we're seeing and the, the crisis and the calamity that we have along that southern border is one it's self-imposed, it's self-inflicted, it's by design, and it is to the extent that we have never seen before. I agree that it's by design. I went to the border numerous times uh, during the Trump administration, so I know that it can be done. But at this point that we are now, if this president, if this administration decided to get tough on it, if Congress decided to get tough on our border and our laws, is this fixable? And if so, how long would it take to have a real change at that southern border? Well, I do think it's fixable. Uh, now, it, it, it really depends on what you implement. So if you had, for instance, you know, former President Trump in office with his team and he, he really wanted to fix this, you could probably start making some incremental improvements, uh, probably about 90 to 120 days. And then it would take several months after that to really start seeing some numbers drop. Uh, this administration is not gonna take those decisive actions the big decisions that need to be made. And so they're going to continue to try to, uh, you know, make some improvements around the edges, but we're not going to really see any measurable impact because they have let it go so bad and so far that the numbers are so astronomical that you can't get this under, under in, in hand, I should say, without some dramatic changes. And I don't think that they're willing to actually make these hard decisions. And let me just also say, let me, let me kind of dispel the myth here that this is up to Congress to fix. That is wrong. This administration caused this crisis. They also have the ability to fix it. Instead, they'll continue to shift blame. And, and their latest talking points is that it's a broken immigration system that Congress needs to fix. And yet this administration, the first thing that they sent to Congress back in 2021 was mass amnesty for 12 million people. And somehow that's going to fix the border. It's a charade. They have no intention of fixing it. And unfortunately, I think we're stuck with it as long as they are occupying the White House. But that's their version of fixing it, which is yeah. goes back to the by design thing. They have no desire to fix it. They have a desire to make it look less bad. And they've said, you know, time and time again, they tell us, you know, they kind of brought back Remain in Mexico. And there were certain policies that they were going to implement where people stop in, in, a, in another country and then they put their asylum claim in. But we know that in practice, that's not actually working. When you're seeing what's happening at the border and you're seeing from an insider perspective, are our Border Patrol agents, are they just essentially hand-tied at this point where they're just welcoming people in and there's nothing that they can really do about it? 
I think that's right. I think the morale that you see among Border Patrol agents today is probably the lowest that we have ever seen it. Border Patrol has essentially been turned into a migrant processing agency. They're no longer doing that national security mission out on the line, trying to stop bad people and bad individuals coming in. Seven out of every 10 Border Patrol agents are in in their centers processing migrants. It's not where they should be. It's not what the American people really pay them for. But again, this is by design. This is what the uh, this is what this administration wants them doing, um, and so they've got a tough job. They're in a no-win situation. But morale, retention, hiring, all of that is suffering under this administration uh, because they're not being allowed to do their job. Law enforcement officers above anything else, and and why they really love former President Trump so much is he allowed them to do their job. He told them to go out and catch bad people and bad things, and that's what exactly what they did. And now they're having to work and, and and go you know about their day with, I would say one or maybe even both hands tied behind their back. Yeah, I mean we're seeing just lines of people, and that's another part of this that I find interesting because there's a lot of competing narratives as to what exactly the policies and the process is surrounding this mass asylum seeking. So to my knowledge, if you want to claim asylum, you do it at a port of entry. You don't do it after you're trying to cross the, the river or after you're crawling under razor wire and then saying, oh, I'm claiming asylum. So how is that, if that is in fact the case, that you have to present yourself at a port of entry to claim asylum, how are all of these people being given these court dates to claim their asylum and then led into the United States, re mass released into our country? How is that even possible? Is it legal? Is it is it even following you know the, the spirit of asylum seeking at this point? Yeah, so under under U.S. law, you can claim asylum whether you do it at a port of entry or whether you're doing it between a port of entry, as long as you're on U.S. soil. Now, what the left will try to tell you is is what should occur after that, and I think that's really the sticking point, is that all of these individuals should be released into the country pending their asylum proceedings. And, and for those of us who worked in the Trump administration, we disagree with that. The law actually doesn't say that. Uh, it says that you need to actually detain them. And if not, then you can hold them in a safe third country, as we did with the Remain in Mexico program and policy. Um, now, look, there's a lot of fraud in the asylum system. I think it needs to be reformed. And I think Congress can do that. This administration has no intention of doing that, by the way, because this is playing out exactly as they wanted to. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can do around asylum reform. So you make sure that those who really need the protections get it quicker than seven years from now. Uh, but there's a different way to go about this. And and what this administration will try to tell the American people is a lie, that all of them have to be released into the country, and that's simply not the case. Well, I think the problem is, is that you can only detain them for a certain number of time, a certain amount of time, and then the facilities are overrun. So when you don't have anywhere yep. to put these people, then they're forced to just release them because they have nowhere to put them. We know that that's <laughs> another big part of this issue. Well, I, I think that is an issue, and we certainly ran into that during the Trump administration, but that's why you need a, a multi-pronged approach. You need to be working with your, your partners in Mexico and Central America so that they put initiatives in place that discourage the types of numbers that we are seeing uh, as they come to the border. Look, when you are apprehending a reasonable amount every single day, and it's not 7,000 or 8,000 or even 10,000 that we're seeing, you can actually manage this. You can detain some individuals, and you can remove them. Again, this administration, because they're overwhelmed, but even if they're not overwhelmed, they are detaining the least amount of individuals that they have to, um, which is if you can't detain them, you, you can't remove them. Um, so there's a lot of things at play. It's pretty, it's pretty dynamic. 
But, you know, I think the most frustrating thing that I see is every move that this administration is making, every policy decision and resource de decision is not being made for the benefit of Americans. It's being made to, to the benefit of these foreign nationals and the folks trying to come into the country illegally. And I think that's wrong. Last question for you. You know, there was a movement a few years back to defund ICE, of course, defund Border Patrol, defund ICE. I haven't heard a lot about ICE these days. I would just assume that ICE really isn't necessarily operational because we know that for many years they've had their hands tied behind their back. But is ICE actually working right now to remove illegal immigrants from this country? I, I haven't seen that play out. Yeah, no, unfortunately not. Uh, I think this administration has basically defunded ICE through policy memorandum. Um, they haven't really done that from a funding standpoint, but uh, this administration has given them so much direction saying that you can't remove individuals unless they fall into certain categories, which is just the wrong thing to do to law enforcement officers. They want to be able to do their job and remove all the individuals that don't have a legal right to be here, particularly those with final orders of removal from an immigration judge. This administration won't let them do any of that, it is putting uh, handcuffs on them to say, uh, figure, you know, sorry, uh, you know, kind of hypothetically putting handcuffs on them to say, look, you can only remove individuals if they fall into these three very small categories. Everyone else, not a priority, so you have to let them go. Um, so that's that's really why you're not hearing a lot from ICE. I think the ICE officers and agents are also frustrated, much like the Border Patrol are. They want to be able to do their job. They want to be able to remove individuals from the country. That's their mission given to them by Congress. And this administration is, again, saying, don't do your job. You know, Instead, we've got a political agenda that you need to be on board with. It's so frustrating. I can't imagine the people that are on the ground having to do this day in and day out. I can't imagine why any of them continue to do it, but we're thankful that they do. Thank yeah. you so much for spending time with me. Um, I'll talk to you in a while. It'll probably still be the same crisis. This uh, September was you know, the highest month on record. October yeah. probably will be even worse. So uh, I'll have you back and we'll break it down. We'll see if there's any will on the left to change this now that the blue cities and states are, are having an issue with it, but I'm not gonna hold my breath. Chad Wolf, thanks so much for spending time with me. All right, thanks a lot, appreciate it. All right, Senator Dianne Feinstein's death left both a vacancy in the Senate and Governor Gavin Newsom in a real pickle as he decided which black woman to anoint and appoint to the seat. You know, he made his choice, but in my humble opinion, he missed out on an obvious choice and I have some final thoughts. The passing of Senator Dianne Feinstein put our buddy Greasy Gavin Newsom in a real spot. He declared that he would appoint a black woman and only a black woman to fill that lame duck interim appointment. Uh, if, in fact, Dianne Feinstein uh, were to retire, uh, will you nominate an African-American woman um, to restore the seat that Kamala Harris is no longer in the United States Senate? And do you have a name in mind? I have multiple names yes in yes mind. Yes no. We have multiple names in mind, and the answer is yes. Oh, but Gavin also declared he would not appoint one of the candidates already running for the spot, which includes a black woman, Barbara Lee, because he didn't want to tip the scales of the March primary. So that left Gavi in a real bind, especially after black women in California were seemingly pretty pissed at his whole philosophy and felt he would be using them as a placeholder or a bench warmer for the eventual and actual senator who will win the spot. I mean, the whole concept is actually pretty racist, but I mean, Democrats gonna Democrats, so it is what it is.
And lo and behold, he did it by appointing this woman, LaFonza Butler. She checks all the identity boxes, black, a woman, and a pro-abortion activist who serves as the president of Emily's List, a pro-abortion group dedicated to elevating pro-abortion women into elected offices. Oh, and she's also LGBTQ. Damn, Gavin, I gotta hand it to you. You out-checked your boxes with this one. Uh, only problem is she lists her residence as Maryland and you're trying to appoint her to a seat in California, but hey, I'm sure no one will notice. Interesting to note this LaFonza Butler also served as a senior strategist on Kamala's 2020 presidential campaign. But speaking of Kamala, I really think Gavin missed an opportunity for himself. Gavin, old buddy, old pal, there was an option that could have been even better for you. Appointing Kamala, black and a woman, check and check. Now, I don't know how this would have unfolded or what constitutional hurdles this strategy would have had to clear to become possible, but hear me out. If I were a Democrat strategist, I would have played it like this. Are you ready? The DNC, the powers that be who actually run the show, you know, the Obama holdovers like Valerie Jarrett and others who are actually running this White House. Yeah, they should have sat down with Kamala and let her know the obvious and no uncertain terms. She will not be president. She cannot run for president. She would lose dismally and end up with a legacy of international embarrassment. So they could have convinced her to instead take this Senate appointment and release some BS statement about wanting to return to the Senate and represent California, blah, 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 whatever. Okay, so then Kamala would have been out of the way and the Democrats would have finally been free and clear to kick the big guy Brandon to the curb. And then bam, just like that, Gavin Newsom becomes the Democrat nominee. Now, I know all of this sounds a little far-fetched, but actually not as far-fetched as the Democrats actually trying to run basement dementia Joe or czar of disaster Kamala Harris. They need an out, and this Senate vacancy could have been just the thing, a missed opportunity for Gavin Newsom, if you ask me. But nonetheless, I still maintain Gavin Newsom will be the Democrat nominee. So gird your loins, America. Those are my final thoughts. Don't forget to like and subscribe Outkick on YouTube. From Nashville, God bless and take care.